Welcome, and thank you for listening to Grace Heritage Church Audio, building a household of faith on a foundation of grace. Visit us online at graceheritage.org. Please stay tuned after the message for more information. All right. In case anybody was wondering, all those pictures up there are part of the slideshow that we, we were trying to get going and only had part of, a, part of them last time, so uh, I might show that again later. Okay, get close to me. All right. Okay, let's uh, let's go ahead and get started. Let me just remind you where we where we were. And Jonathan Ricketts is going to be handing out a uh, a handout, an outline for us today. My OCD there. Got to make sure it's just right. Um, okay, so let me remind you of what we've been talking about. We're in the fourth class of a study of what we've called Baptist Covenant theology. Um, this is a, a study showing how God has uh, revealed his dealings with mankind in terms of covenants. And uh, we saw that um, Adam broke God's covenant of life or covenant of works in the garden. And from that point, God has been revealing the gospel of his grace through a series of covenants um, in various ways. But these covenants culminate in the new covenant that is made with all of God's chosen people. So the diagram that we've been looking at here is this right here. And um, if you keep putting your feet on that, then I'm going to keep sorry. having to adjust this. And then my OCD will come out in really terrible ways. So anyway, I looked at it and go, why does it keep drifting? Something's wrong with the computer. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate you taking mercy on me. Um, all right. Uh, anyway, so um, we talked about, we defined what a, what a covenant is, which is essentially a formal arrangement between God and uh, his creatures, his uh, human, humans, of, not always all of humanity, but, um, and, and usually with a, well, really pretty much always with a representative head, that he deals with as a, as a representative of, of the people in that covenant. And uh, so we, we talked about um, the, the covenant of works, which God made in um, the garden with Adam. Adam broke that covenant, and uh, then God revealed by promise a covenant that was to come that would rescue Adam and offer grace to his descendants. And then last time we talked about the, the Abrahamic covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham that was pivotal in God's plan to bring salvation to the fallen descendants of Adam. And what we saw and spent a lot of time on last week was the fact that this covenant is actually two covenants in one, two very contrasting covenants in one, in fact, um, because we, we saw in Galatians 4, it very clearly teaches, in a sense, it's, it's actually called in Galatians 4, two covenants. And those are... Uh, typified or pictured by Ishmael, who was the, the natural offspring that, that happened by ordinary uh, processes, and then Isaac, who was 
the, the offspring of promise that happened by a miracle, in a sense. And so um, what we've said is the structure that we're looking at is the, the Bible is made up of, of two basic covenants, uh, the new covenant and the old covenant. The old covenant is, is really revealed in kind of in stages, and, um, or I should say is put into place in stages. And then at the same time, it begins to, to point forward to the new covenant, which I believe is the covenant of what we would call the covenant of grace. So the covenant of grace does not, is not formally enacted in, during the time of the old covenant before Christ comes. It's formally enacted when Christ comes. It's pointed, so the, the, the faith of God's people is looking forward to what God will do in Christ. So that's kind of the framework that, that I've been trying to develop here. Okay, uh, I'll mention that the two covenants of Abraham were, one was an unconditional covenant that promised, promised Christ as the offspring of Abraham and the blessings of the new covenant. The other one was a conditional covenant that required that the, the people in the covenant do something. It imposed circumcision upon them and it set apart the, the natural offspring of Abraham as a channel for the promised seed who would bless the nations. Okay, so that's kind of a quick overview of where we, we are up to this point. So let's ask the Lord to, to bless our time as we continue to study. Father in heaven, we thank you for the way you have re revealed uh, your purposes to us, and, uh, and we, we are amazed as we see the sweep of your revelation in history and the work that you've done to accomplish redemption for your people. It is uh, not a, uh, a simple, quick matter, but it has uh, uh, been unfolded over thousands of years and, uh, and at, uh, um, in, in many, many ways. And so I ask, Father, that you would help us to, to grasp what it is you're trying to show us through this and uh, that we would get a better view of Christ and the gospel and our own place in responding to that and that we would be moved to, to uh, worship and glorify you, marveling at your handiwork. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so this week we're going to talk about God's covenant with Moses. Um, so I want us to begin by looking at the kind of foundational passage, or one of the foundational passages, if you would turn with me to Exodus chapter 24. Um, in Exodus 24, we see this, this covenant formally inaugurated, okay? Now, we're going to see that the, the covenant with Moses is a very complex covenant. And, so, and there's much revelation that comes about during this period of time. And so um, we see here as kind of the, the, the point, it comes to a point right here, but but the revelation doesn't really start there and it doesn't end there in terms of the, the supporting uh, information about the, the Mosaic Covenant. But this is a good place to start to kind of see the essence of it. So if you're at, in Exodus chapter 24, I'm going to begin with verse 3. It says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. By the way, the last four <laughs> chapters, chapters 20 through 23 have been unfolding all those rules, 
Okay, so this is kind of the summary statement at the end of four chapters of lots and lots of detailed rules. Okay, beginning with, in chapter 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments and then going on with lots and lots of details beyond that in terms of uh, various festivals and regulations and, and so forth. Okay, so Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And the, all the people answered with one voice and said... All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said... All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So this we see uh, uh, God as a sovereign imposing all of these rules and regulations and laws upon them. And then they, as the people, receiving them and saying, We will do these things. So, uh, and then it says uh, there's, a, there's bloodshed as a, a form of uh, uh, formalizing the covenant. And, it, of course, it, in here it says specifically that it is a covenant. It's called the book of the covenant and the blood of the covenant. And so we see a covenant being made here. That's not the end of it, though, because as soon as that's done, he goes on to talk about lots more, lots more rules and regulations and so forth. So um, let's just take a moment to just... Uh, speak of the outline here. Uh, the main point here is that the nation of Israel was formally established by a covenant. Okay, now it was in there was a there was a, a mighty act that was an act of deliverance when Israel was delivered out of Egypt. Okay, once that happened, then the the formalizing of that relationship took place right here. Okay, so all that's really part of the same picture. Um, God, God uh, uh, rescued his people from Egypt and then formalized this covenant with them. And that made them into a nation in a way that they weren't before. Before that, they were just tribes of the descendants of Abraham living in Egypt. And now they, are, um, they have been formalized into a recognized nation under God and under his law. All right. So it's very clear here that this it, we've talked every time we've looked at a covenant, we've asked the question, is it is it an unconditional covenant? Is it simply God um, engaging to do things for his people or is it a conditional covenant in which God says you must do something? Which one is it? It's definitely conditional, isn't it? Lots and lots of things to do here. And in fact, they, they understand that there are things to do, and then they say explicitly, all that the Lord has said, we will do. So they understand it to be a conditional covenant. So these conditions were, I won't, I'm not even going to try to read them all because um, it covers many, many, many chapters, and, uh, and then it actually continues to develop as temple worship develops and so forth. But the conditions included regulations that were, were uh, civil regulations for the conduct of the people as a, as a civil entity. 
but also as, uh, regulations that were ceremonial, that involved um, uh, ritual purification and sacrifices and things like that. Um, and like I said, beginning uh, immediately afterward and into the next chapters, you continue to see more regulations being given to, to clarify and make more specific the things that they were required to do. Okay. Um, also, one thing to note is that the foundational principles of the Old Covenant uh, were, was, I'm not sure how to say this, the Ten Commandments. Okay, the Ten Commandments as a unit was the, the, in a sense, the foundational law of the covenant with Moses. Uh, we see that in a couple of ways. One was that's the very first law that was given. The, the Ten Commandments were given in Exodus chapter 20, and then all these other regulations followed. That kind of implies the, the foundational place it had in that law. Also, in Exodus 34, verse 27 and 28, verses 27 and 28, uh, it says, the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So it's pretty clear from that passage that, that they were foundational to the covenant. Not only that, but of course, remember the Ark of the Covenant? Do you remember what went into the Ark of the Covenant? Well, there were some other things. There was... Uh, Aaron's rod and um, a, a jar of manna and then, um, and then the Ten Commandments. Was there anything else? I don't think there was, there was anything else. But anyway, so the Ten Commandments went into the Ark of the Covenant. So that was, the Ark means a, like a plate, a holder for the covenant. And so the, the Ten Commandments was the foundational uh, law for that. Now, I need to say by way of qualification, that does not mean the that the Ten Commandments were useless outside of the covenant with Moses. And it also does not mean that it was something new. It wasn't new law that was made when they were written down. Uh, the Ten Commandments played a specific role in the covenant with Moses, and that role, in that particular role, was abolished along with the covenant. So you sometimes see some, some very... Uh, radical, unqualified statements in the New Testament about the law being abolished, but it's abolished in the particular role that it played in the Mosaic Covenant. It doesn't mean that all law was abolished. Okay, The Ten, ten Commandments, um, I do not believe, were abolished in the ultimate sense of being uh, an expression of God's uh, character um, in how it plays out in the lives of his people. And if you want to do the graduate school, uh, if you want to get graduate credit for this class, then you have to read um, Richard Barcelos' book, In Defense of the Decalogue. And he goes into a lot more detail uh, about that. There's also another article by him that I could point you to if you're interested in understanding the nuances of abolished but still uh, useful, still, still valid. And I think he does a good job with that. Okay, so uh, first of all, the, it, was, it was a conditional covenant. Second of all, we, we see that this covenant was made in fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham. Okay, this is not a covenant that comes out of the blue. And God just kind of arbitrarily and suddenly and sort of disconnectedly decides, oh, I'm going to make a different new covenant. Okay. That this covenant is somehow disconnected. It's not. It, it, it comes directly out of the Abrahamic covenant and in fulfillment of it, which is why I think we can say that 
in a sense, this old covenant, we can treat that as one covenant because we can see that the Mosaic covenant is just a development of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, now let me show you. If you would, turn with me to um, Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. So let's look at what Scripture says about the relationship to, of this covenant to the Abrahamic covenant. This is just one passage of, of many that we could look at that expresses this. So in Exodus chapter 6, it's starting in verse 3. He says, God speaking, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. This is referring to the Abrahamic covenant that we studied last week. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. God's saying, I remembered the covenant that is now in place. Okay, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So we see that God is saying, this is why I'm doing this. I'm doing this because I already have a covenant in place with Abraham. And, with, and that, of course, it was passed along to Isaac and, and to Jacob. And so now I'm acting in accord with this covenant that I've already established. And now I'm establishing another covenant that, that essentially just continues to implement and fill up the covenant that I already have in place. Okay? So I kind of think of it as a, a filling up of the covenant with Abraham, particularly the covenant of circumcision. Okay? So this covenant, we can say it implemented the promises of the Abrahamic covenant to give them a land and to preserve the nation, which is what the Abrahamic covenant promised, among other things. Okay? So the covenant was conditional. The covenant was made in fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham. And then also, the Mosaic Covenant was the fully developed form of the Old Covenant. So that's why we have this little thing kind of doing like this, because it's developing. The Old Covenant starts off in a really small seed form, and, and, it, and it develops and gets bigger and more, uh, more detailed as it goes along. And so the final, most de fully developed version of it is the Covenant with Moses. All right. So um, we could look at a number of passages. I'll just, I'm going to refer you to a single verse that kind of teaches that. I think Hebrews 9.1 says, Now even the first covenant, and, and the first covenant is in part of that discussion in Hebrews that's contrasting the new covenant to the old covenant. So uh, the first covenant is the old covenant. All right, now what is it like? What is the old covenant like? It says, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Now think back for a minute. What covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place for, of holiness? It was the covenant with Moses when the tabernacle was established, right? And when the temple was built. There was a place where they were to worship. Before that... Abraham could sacrifice wherever. 
and before that, the same. Okay? It wasn't until it reached that level of detail and that level of, of development that there was a specific place for holiness and there, was a, there were uh, all kinds of rules and regulations for worship. Okay? So when Hebrews 9 uh, speaks of the first covenant, it's not that it's excluding the other parts, but it's thinking kind of at, you know, you look back and you see the peak of the past, and the peak of the past is the covenant with Moses. That's what sticks out. Okay? So that's the, the, the ultimate um, development of the old covenant. Okay? So now uh, we need to think a little bit about what God was doing with the old covenant, and particularly the Mosaic covenant. And this is complicated. I'm just going to tell you. <laughs> because the theologians have wrestled through the centuries with what exactly God was doing in the Mosaic Covenant. Because it seems to be such a mixture of things. On one hand, it, it, um, it seems to be to, to pretty clearly uh, portray the idea that mercy is needed, right? Because there's all these sacrifices and everything. It's clear that, that the Mosaic Covenant assumes that it's a covenant made with sinners that need to be forgiven, that need a, a substitute so that, that their sins can be taken away. So it points forward, of course, from our perspective in the New Covenant, it points forward to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Clearly, the Mosaic Covenant does that. On the other hand, it's so full of all these rules and regulations and, and so forth that it, it seems uh, very law-centered and burdensome, and, and, uh, and it's conditional, which we already saw that. So um, we, we see that aspect of things, too. Also, uh, we find that from the New Covenant perspective, um, it seems to be, you know, it's, it's fading away. It's, going, it's, it's old. It's obsolete. Those are kind of the kinds of terms that are used for it. So, you know, what, why, why is it important? And why do we, why are we, and what is it that God is doing in that? Okay, so we're going to try to tackle that. And um, I, I think that uh, there's a, there is a, a way to look at this that is um, faithful to the various texts of Scripture that talk about the covenant with Moses and, um, and can actually make some sense, okay, in a, in a kind of consistent, systematic way, all right? So we're going to wrestle through that a bit. First of all, I want to make a case that the Mosaic Covenant was not what some people call um, an administration of the covenant of grace, okay? There is, there, the, I would say what... When I, when I talk about covenant theology, I've said this is Baptist covenant theology. Part of the reason why I'm doing that is because there is a, a more, uh, uh, th there's another form of covenant theology that is found more among uh, Presbyterian and Reformed, uh, continental Reformed churches that um, if you just say covenant theology, that's generally what you mean. And in kind of that standard version of covenant theology, not qualified by the label Baptist, um, the, the, all of these covenants are viewed as, a, as having an internal aspect and an external aspect, but every one of them is a, what we would call an administration of the covenant of grace. So I want to show you 
that perspective. This is not the perspective I agree with, but I want you to understand this one so that you can see where we're going in contrast to that. So here's the idea, that basically all the covenants um, are a manifestation or, or, a, or an administration of the covenant of grace. An administration, you might say, is a, it's an implementation of the covenant of grace. Okay? So, um, you know, then it becomes, it, it sort of, it does have that sort of expanding aspect to it, and then it becomes clearer in the new covenant. Um, but the idea is that there's kind of this shell, there's this inner reality, and there's this outer shell always. And the inner reality, is, the internal substance is it's always the people of God, uh, the true people of God, the elect people of God who are regenerate in the, in the core of it. But on the outside, there's always this principle, according to this view, of an external shell or an external administration of the covenant of grace. And that would include those who are not necessarily regenerate, not necessarily born again, or true believers, but those who are simply connected to true believers by family connection. In other words, um, that's why I call this pedobaptist covenant theology, because this is uh, a theology that's used to justify including children of believers in the membership of the church. Okay? Yeah, I'm going to talk about how to try to think about how to think through that a little bit as we go. Um, I also will just acknowledge here that there's some internal debate within the, those who would adopt this general view about exactly how to view the Mosaic Covenant within that overall framework. Okay, So you're going to get a little bit different views and articulate, well, a lot different views and articulations on that. And I think some of that debate is really because there's um, some inconsistency that just can't fully be resolved. Okay, so here's a, here's a, I think this is a source of confusion because it overemphasizes the continuity of the Old and New Covenants in the wrong places, in the wrong way. Okay, what happens is that old elements of Old Covenant worship are sometimes mistakenly brought into the New Covenant on the basis that there's this continuity of the internal substance and that there's always an external part that goes along with it. The problem is that there's not a clear principle that distinguishes how to carry over the external components in there. Well, that's one of the problems with it. There's just no clear principle to distinguish between elements that carry over and elements that don't. Okay? So, um, that's why I want to uh, offer you a, an alternative um, and um, let me see how to present this with so let me just remind you that, that there's a there's an essential problem with this view of the um, old and the new or the internal and the external being kind of part of the same thing and let me just remind you what we looked at last week that we have this, this sharp contrast that Scripture makes between two covenants in Abraham. Abraham the Abrahamic covenant is usually considered the, the prime example of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament with the internal and the external, and the external being the physical 
uh, children of Ab Abraham and the internal being those who are not only the physical children but also believing um, and justified. But we see here, if you remember last time, there was a sharp contrast made between those two and it's, and it's uh, labeled for us in Galatians as two different covenants on two different bases, totally different, okay? So there's a sharp contrast, not, not like an internal and external, but two uh, opposing principles in a sense, okay? Not opposing in the sense of God's purposes. God used both of them, but, but there's still an opposition in terms of the basic principle. So I'm going to go back to this again and say that I think this is the way to understand the, the uh, continuity, and that is in... Um, that salvation in the Old Covenant, and this is, this is going to be a little bit hard to grasp maybe, but I'm going to say it two or three times and I want you to get this, okay? Salvation in the Old Covenant was the same as salvation in the New. The only way that anyone ever could be, has been, or will be saved is on the basis of the work of Christ, Okay? So by necessity, they had to look forward to Christ, okay? Those sacrifices that they did in the Old Covenant would have, they, they were useful in the sense that they foreshadowed the Christ to come, the sacrifice to come. But they were not useful if Christ didn't come, okay? Because only because Christ came could those sacrifices have any meaning or any value to anyone. So the graciousness, what I would say, the graciousness of the Old Covenant is in that it is constantly pointing forward to the work of Christ in the New Covenant. Not only, but there are also some other parts to it, too, which I'll, I'll uh, unpack in a minute. But specifically in terms of the, the grace offered by the Old Covenant, it's not in the Old Covenant itself that it is able to offer any grace. It's pointing forward to the work of Christ. And only in Christ is that grace really found. So salvation in the Old Covenant was the same as salvation in the New. But salvation was not based on the Old Covenant. Okay? Very, very important thing to understand. Salvation in the Old Covenant was the same as salvation in the New. But salvation was not based on the Old Covenant. This was the problem that the Jews had, that the Pharisees had is that they thought that, that salvation could be obtained from the Old Covenant itself. Okay? Instead of looking through the, deck, the, the revelation of the Old Covenant to something else that God would provide. Uh, Hebrews 7 through 9, another reason why I'm, why I'm saying it, that the covenant is not an administration of the covenant of grace is that Hebrews 7 through 9 teach a very sharp contrast between Old and New Covenants. And we'll look at that next week. Um, let me just summarize. It says that the New Covenant is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. Okay? Very clear scripture. Um, it, tell, it teaches us in, that, in that, those chapters that the Old Covenant and the New Covenant have different mediators. Okay? The only mediator between God and man is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Covenant did not have Christ as the mediator. It says that he is the mediator of a better covenant. It also says they're based on different promises. So in their essence, they are very different covenants. They are not simply uh, the inward and the outward of the same thing. Okay? 
So um, it, it, the problem, the, the old covenant has much to say to us about the new covenant, but only in terms of types and shadows, but not reality. Okay. All right. And then um, uh, well, uh, we've already said that the, the uh, covenant with Moses is a fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham, the physical covenant with Abraham. And, and we already saw last week that the Abrahamic covenant is not the covenant of grace. It's actually two different covenants, two opposing covenants kind of wrapped into one and ultimately serving God's purposes, but still in themselves very different principles. Um, and and the, the covenant made with the physical descendants of Abraham is sharply contrasted with the promised covenant. Okay, so here's where the the the, the grace is displayed of, in the Old Covenant, in the Mosaic Covenant. And that is that it revealed the covenant of grace by types. Types are like a, a, a symbol of something to come. Okay? So it revealed the covenant of grace by types. Let's think about some of the types that were there. First of all, Israel itself, as the physical offspring of Abraham, is a type of Christ, because Christ is the offspring of Abraham. He is, the, he is the better Israel. He's the Israel who was obedient to all of God's law. They said, all that you said we will do, but they didn't. Christ did. Christ did it. So, so Israel, as a nation, walking around, points to, in a, in a feeble way, of course, but they point to the reality that there's a seed to come. That there's one who's set apart to be the seed, to be the Savior. So they reveal that covenant of grace in that way. Um, also, all of the sacrifices in the Old Covenant reveal the sacrifice to come. They reveal it in a couple of ways. One is it, it plays out the principle of, of, of substitution, that a sacrifice is necessary for salvation, Right? But it also plays out in another way, and that is that the fact that they had to keep doing these sacrifices over and over and over indicated that they weren't effectual. They didn't actually do what they, what they symbolized. Only Christ could do that. Hebrews unpacks that for us. And then the third thing is that Israel as a nation, being the outward people and the outward or physical nation of the, of, uh, the offspring of Abraham, is a type of the true people of God. And Scripture calls them the, a holy nation. It also uses that terminology for the church. The church is a holy nation. So Israel as a, as a people were a type of the true people of God. And I should also say that the, the, the people of Israel at that time were the only people of God. So the, the true people of God were wrapped up in the type, some people were both physically uh, offspring of Abraham and spiritually the offspring of Abraham. And so it, it did become the, the carrier, in a sense, of the true people of God. So what was the, what was the purpose of this covenant? Um, it served three direct purposes, other than its typical purpose, which we talked about just now, about types, but it serves three direct purposes, and um, 
and then I'm going to, um, yeah, I'm going to lay those out. And then it also served a special purpose for Christ. So I'm back to my diagram here, which um, without allowing you to guess, I told you that upper thing up there was an eye. So we had this little family debate about whether that looked like an eye or not. Um, and so I was told that I cheated because I changed it after I asked um, whether it looked like an eye. And it looked more like an eye now. Um, anyway, but um, so that's supposed to be an eye of, of Abraham, the promised covenant, looking forward to the new covenant. But the type, the promise to the natural seed, was filled up in the Mosaic covenant. That's why I got that little arrow there because we're focusing on that box today. Okay. But then the Mosaic covenant becomes in three different ways the foundation for the new covenant. And that's what those little boxes, probably didn't pay much attention to that last time, but um, I'm going to unpack those three boxes now. But since they were tiny little boxes, I couldn't write anything in them and have, expect you to read them. So sorry I didn't label those in any way. All right, so here they are. Um, the, the first one is that it preserved the scriptures. The old covenant preserved the scriptures, particularly the scriptures or the, the, the revelation of the promise of a seed to come. That was the most important of all of these things. Uh, Romans 3.1 says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Okay? Romans 9.4 says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Okay, so it preserved the scriptures, but then that last verse also tells us another thing. It preserved Christ. It preserved the line through which the Messiah would come, the people from whom the seed would come. Galatians 3.19 says, why then the law? Okay, now so here it's, a, there's, it's talking about a contrast between the promised covenant that was already in place, the Abrahamic covenant. Why is it that the law came in after that, it's saying? Was it to do away with the promise? And so he's saying, no, it, it doesn't do away with the promise. It actually helps to fulfill the promise because it helps to preserve the line through which the, the promise would be fulfilled. The Messiah would come. Uh, so it, it, uh, Galatians 3.19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So, have you ever wondered why there's so many genealogies in the Old Testament? You know, I, I was thinking, I've never heard anybody say, I was reading through, is it First Chronicles? Reading through First Chronicles, first nine chapters of First Chronicles, and man, my heart was so warmed. Like 15 pages of genealogy, nothing but genealogies. And, uh, and you're going, oh, why is this in the Bible? Well, there is a reason why it's in the Bible. And the main reason is to show us that God is faithful to his promises. Because you can trace from Abraham all the way down through to the provision of his offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ, through all those genealogies. And in fact, what's interesting is when all those genealogies in the Old Testament, even though those are there, the New Testament begins with a genealogy. Matthew begins with a genealogy. Luke also has a genealogy right there near the beginning. And, uh, and those are important. Those are like, okay, we're finally here. We're going to trace it all out, okay, and show you that the Lord, that God was faithful in providing this offspring 
of Abraham. And that's what those genealogies are there for, at least primarily. Um, I'll also just mention, have you noticed that in the New Testament, once the genealogy of Christ is presented, there are no more genealogies in the New Testament. That, that whole uh, pattern, is, its purpose has been fulfilled. And there's no need for genealogies after that. Okay. Um, so, the law also set the nation apart from other nations. Think about circumcision, all those festivals and all those sacrifices that they did, and all those civil, detailed civil statutes that they had. Um, it, it, to be uh, uncircumcised was to be considered unclean. Um, it, to, it was, they were set apart. It was, it was not, whereas these various tribes and, and peoples you know, living kind of out on the edge near another tribe could intermarry and be not, not that big of a deal. There just wasn't that much contrast between their customs and so forth between these two different groups. But there was a huge one between Israel and the others. The circumcision in itself was huge. Um, but also all these regulations and so forth that, that required things of them and banned them from intermarrying with other people and so forth, all those things kept them separate kept that line pure and so that we, we could trace forward to Christ. Um, all right, so then the, that, those are the, and I forgot to do this, little circles, okay? Um, so I had little circles for each of those. And then, um, then the third circle now is um, it shut them up to the gospel, as their only hope. By, by imposing all this law on them, which they said we will do, and then they ultimately didn't do and couldn't do, it taught them that that was not the source of their salvation. That was not the source of their hope. That they had to look elsewhere. They had to look away from the, the law to Christ as their only hope. Um, Galatians 3.21 uh, start, start, it says, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. In other words, the giving of the law, was, it wasn't for the purpose of saving them through the law. It was to show them that they couldn't be saved through the law. Okay. Um, Acts 15.10 says, now therefore, this is when some of the Judaizers were trying to, to impose all those Jewish regulations on Gentiles. And it says, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? They recognized, you know, when you read through all those regulations and it seems burdensome to read, think about how burdensome it would have been to live under it. So, yeah, it is burdensome. It's burdensome even to read it. Okay? That's not an insult on the Scripture. That's what God intended for, for us to walk away with. It was burdensome. It really was. And they, the apostles acknowledged that. Then Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. If you remember in the, the, contra, the comparison of the two sons of Abraham, one was, the, was born into slavery, the other one was born into freedom. It talks about being under the old covenant as slavery. 
Okay? And why was it slavery? It was slavery because they, it was a burden to live under those regulations and because um, th they had to live under them during that time of uh, uh, development uh, in redemptive history. That was what God had called them to do. And so um, even though a person might be a true, uh, uh, truly converted uh, believer in the, the future offspring of Abraham, he was still under slavery because he was still obligated to live under that system. Um, they, Israel was enslaved because they were imprisoned in the role of serving as a type of something rather than serving as simply the reality itself. They had to serve as the type instead of the reality. And all the trappings that were necessary to serve that way um, were laid upon them to do that. Okay? So those are the three direct purposes. And then now I want to uh, mention the, uh, the last thing, and that is it served as a special purpose for Christ. Okay? Now, some of the details of this, I want to say, are, are a bit, uh, I don't know if speculative is the right word, but, but there's a lot of debate about trying to refine exactly how to articulate this, okay? But I'm going to try to give you the best that, I, that I've been able to come up with on this. First of all, we see in the Old Covenant a principle of justification by works that is revealed there, okay? And it's a, this is a hard to really figure out because it says, the, in Galatians 3.12, it says, the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. And that's quoting from Leviticus 18.5, okay? So why did the law promise that the one who does these things will live by them if, if the whole idea was to point them away from the law? Okay, well, this is difficult, but um, because the thing is, fallen people are already condemned in Adam. There is no chance for a fallen person to come and say, okay, I think I'll undergo this, I'll, I'll obey this perfectly. It's not that just that you can't obey it perfectly. You're, you're not even allowed to. <laughs> I mean, that's not, you're not even in that covenant anymore. You're, the covenant is broken for you. So you can't, you can't go in and initiate that relationship as a fallen person. Uh, you're not eligible to do that, to earn obedience that way. Okay? But I think that, at least in part, one of the things that that's teaching us is that Jesus, who was born without condemnation because he was not born uh, under Adam's headship, um, Jesus rendered full obedience to the entire revelation of the law and uh, regulations of Moses, the covenant God made through Moses. And he did this on behalf of all Israel. Okay, So Galatians 4.4 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, notice that phrase, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Adam had this one extra kind of thing to fulfill other than just the general moral law that he was born under in his conscience. That is to not eat of the tree. Jesus had this entire system that he was born under. 
that he had to obey in addition to the Ten Commandments. And yet he was faithful in that and obeyed in that and won our salvation because of it. And then so I'm going to just give you this last point just to uh, transition us into next week, and that is that the, the Mosaic Covenant was superseded by the New Covenant. And we see that in, in Hebrews chapter 8, which I won't read because we're over time. But uh, we're going to get unpack the New Covenant next week, talk a little bit about how it relates to the Old Covenant and what's uh, promised in that. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of it and uh, the way that it, has wo- it is woven together in, in so many ways to, to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, whether it's uh, the promises of the gospel that are there directly uh, promising Christ or even the law which uh, bumps us and, and, and beats us and, and, and causes us to run away from it uh, for our justification. Um, all these things point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, that the, the, uh, your law might be fulfilled in us. And so, Father, help us to um, understand these things better, to wrestle with the difficulties, and uh, that we might uh, have a greater appreciation for Christ's work. And, um, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, if anybody has any questions, I know I'm not leaving time for questions, but please come up and talk to me. Uh, now would be a really good time. Um, I'm not going to be able to be here this evening, so I won't be able to field questions this evening like we usually do. Um, but please email me questions. Talk to me now. Um, ask Paul, or he can feel, uh, pass them along to me, um, any of those things, because I would love to hear any questions that you have. Thank you for listening. Grace Heritage Church meets in Auburn, Alabama. Services are held at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday morning at 1345 Antelou Drive, 